0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the seventh, 2014. And this is episode what episode is this? 1442 of the Survival Podcast. I'll be cranking out two episodes today. One will be published tomorrow for you. That'll be 1443. There'll be an interview with a gentleman named Jeff Yargo, who is an awesome guy in the alternative energy field. He's a writer for Backwoods Home Magazine. Today we're going to talk about Ebola. And then, guys, you're without TSP for a little while. I have got to go to West Virginia for the Fall Festival uh, for Perma Ethos. Anybody that wants to come last minute, we do have some tickets available still. You can get them on the website. I'll put a link in to today's show. I will be up there from Wednesday through Monday. That means there'll be no TSP Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, Friday, or Monday this week. I'm sorry. I I can't do the show and go there and teach and consult on the farm and all this other stuff. So, uh, I will be out for a few days. I'll give you some time to catch up on some past episodes. There's been some really good ones lately. There's been some long ones lately. So if you're behind, it would be a good catch up time. And then I will be back next week on Tuesday to bring you another survival podcast episode. I just want to give you a heads up on that. Um, I'll tell you what, today we're going to talk about a subject that I didn't want to talk about, uh, because I didn't want to contribute to any of the hype or the hysteria around Ebola, but it is a thing that we do have to be concerned with for various reasons, and we'll try to go into them and not underplay the concerns and certainly not overplay the hype because there's enough of that crap going on already, um... Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is westernbotanicals.com. Now, look, I'm not going to tell you if you get Ebola to uh, put a little comfrey on it or something like that. But when it comes down to it, I do treat most of my illnesses, injuries, and aches and pains with herbal remedies. And the go-to source I use for that is Western Botanicals. And the reason is if I call them up and go, dudes, I just got cancer and I'm wondering if you have something that cures that, they'll be like, no, no. No, you need to go to the doctor, dude. Um, we can't help you with that. They're honest. There's no hype at all at Western Botanicals. Their goal is to have an, a, an herbalist in every home. Uh, and to do that by empowering you both with their herbal preparations and raw herbs and the information you need to put them together if you want to do that for yourself. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they do a great discount for members of the support brigade. Next up today, Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. He's got some really great seasonings. I just found out he's like expanded his line. He's now got a prime rib rub. I'm going to be ordering that today. He's got a lemon pepper. I don't know if I'm going to order that because eh, it's not my thing, lemon pepper. Some people really like it, though. He's got a pork loins and chop seasoning. I'm going to order some of that today. I'm going to order at least $50 bucks worth of stuff from Keith Snow today, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to do that. He also has something new that I'm really, really excited about. It's harvest-eating Thai curry. And I did not know he had this because the uh, son of a gun didn't tell me he had this Thai chicken curry or Thai curry powder, and right now he's doing an unadvertised special. And if you order at least $50 worth of spices and then you use the the discount code... Um, free curry. You will get a free package of the Thai curry. So I'm gonna order at least fifty bucks to try that. He's got a bunch of stuff going on right now. Check him out. His website is harvesteating.com. He will teach you to cook seasonally and locally, and provide some really great stuff for you as well. All right, with that, um, let us talk about the year that was the episode i got an interesting one for you today on TSPwiki.com, the Survival, Sustainability, and Historical Wiki. This comes from Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us. I have How Things Work, Keeping the Streets Clean, and I have The Grand Sergeant, The Next Best Thing to Immortality. Um, I'm going to read The Grand Sergeant because it says something about government not changing in the way that it does things for many, many, many years, all the way back to the year 1442. There is no good way to say this, so let's quote the historian directly regarding jobs and the reason they exist in the 15th century. It's a religious thing. And this is a quote. In matters of utility or of ceremony, medieval authority creates a special organ for every function because it regards the function as an idea and considers it as an actual thing. The Grand Sergeant of the King of England comprised... A dignitary whose office it was to hold the king's head when he crossed the channel and was suffering with seasickness. A certain John Baker held the office in 1442, and after his death, it passed to his two daughters. John Husinga, the warning of the Middle Ages. Okay. Let's look at this. My take by Alex Shrug. Apparently, jobs exist because God demands that certain jobs exist, not because it makes much sense. While one can imagine hiring some fellow to hold up the king's head when he gets sick, it's difficult to imagine such a job being a permanent position, much less an inheritable one, unless one really believed that God ordained that such jobs exist No wonder government programs are considered the next best thing to immortality. It never dies. There's a saying around here, if you get one good highway contract as a contractor from the state of Texas, you can retire on it. It's not far from the truth. There's places that I swear to God have been in construction since I came here in 1993. And they look like they did when I got here. I don't understand. Um, but this one, this actually makes me think of there's an old story, and apparently this is one that passes the muster. It's actually true about an old airline graveyard, like an old airline junkyard that the government had sitting around and figured they needed a white light, night watchman for. It. So they get this night watchman, they stick them out there, and they realize like there's no one supervising the night watchman. So this whole department grows. Out of the need for this night watchman who watches a junkyard that no one gives a shit about to exist. And it grows into this big department of like, you know, 20, 30, 40 people that exist. It's all started with this night watchman. Well, then all of a sudden there's budget cuts and they lay off the night watchman, but everybody else keeps their job. Yeah. That's how government programs work. On that note, I have a little aside for you guys today I thought you might like to hear. Um,. I've been rereading The One Straw Revolution by, by Masanobo Fukuoka, and I got to a quote today that I found really impactful. So I put it onto a little picture of uh, Mr. Fukuoka out in one of his fields and put a little quote on it and made my poor attempt at a little meme and put this out on Facebook. And the quote was this, "...doctors and medicine become necessary when people create a sickly environment." Formal schooling has no intrinsic value, but becomes necessary when humanity creates a condition in which one must become educated to get along. Masanobo Fukuora. I put that out, and most people received it well, but there were a few people objecting to it, like, I think you've lost your head if we don't think like we need education and, and modern medicine. Um, way to miss the whole point. That's like somebody threw you a great big softball to hit with a big old giant softball bat, and uh, you threw your bat down, grabbed a golf club, and swung the back handle at it. Um, I don't think Mr. Fukuora is saying there's no purpose whatsoever at all, infinity, ad nauseum, to any modern medicine or any modern education. What he's saying is we've created an environment where we believe them to be necessary where they are not. Not that they're not useful, that they're not necessary. Specifically, they are not necessary to the extent at which they're used, and you have to read it in the totality. You also have to understand the symbolism of the Japanese language. You're talking about a guy that could write, in, what, write poetry in Japanese. Okay? This is not a person that does not appreciate education as in itself. But it is a person, as he was getting older and reflecting on his life, realizing that many of the things we're convinced are necessary are not. And that once you're convinced something is necessary, you over-rely on it and you overuse it. Human beings have a belief today that a formal education is a need. okay? Not a formal education opportunity for those that want the path. But the very concept that anybody could exist without that is just, that can't be. No, they will. And what his point is, is the only reason there's any truth to the fact that it's necessary is our society has created an environment where they need it to get along. Okay. and that modern medicine exists because we have created a sickly environment for ourselves that most of the conditions treated by modern medicine, a few of which we'll talk about today, did not exist a hundred years ago. The rate of type 2 diabetes a hundred years ago was almost nothing. Many modern illnesses are a direct result of our choices and our lifestyles and how we pollute and poison our bodies. And when we say doctors and medicine become necessary, when people create a sickly environment, that's not, let's get rid of every hospital, let's just not do anything. Because the whole concept of what Fukuora talks about in The One Straw Revolution is what he calls do-nothing farming. Do-nothing farming is a lot of work. You're doing a lot of things. It's, but there's many things that you don't do that other farmers do. And it's this philosophy being reflected through this quote. Those that do not understand it tend to be those who do not wish to understand it because they are defending the institutions versus the concepts. Rather than defending the need for medicine and health, you're defending the institution of modern medicine. Rather than defending the concept of education and information exchange and teaching, you're defending the modern educational system. Those two things are in fact separate and it's quite coincidental I guess that we talked about the iron law of bureaucracy yesterday where those dedicated to the organization itself always end up in control of the organization to the expense of those dedicated to the organization's mission. We can have tremendous opportunities for education and there's a place for institutionalized learning for those that choose it. I'd just like to see more choice for those who choose not to engage in it and what we've seen so far is those who have made what today is sometimes a very difficult choice to exist outside of that educational system, in many instances turn around and spank the crap out of those out of that system. Anyway, just a thought. thought you'd like that. Uh, that photo is on the Survival Podcast um, page on Facebook and on my personal Facebook page, and I'll probably throw it on Twitter later today. So there you go. Also, uh, remember, I do have the, I'm doing the fall festival for Permit Ethos this week, but in November, okay, which is gonna be November, I wanna, I wanna make sure I don't say it wrong, uh, 6, 7, and 8, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, with students showing up on Thursday and have to be out of here, uh, on Sunday. Uh, I still have, I think, six seats available for that. You can sign up at thesurvivalpodcast.com, just look for the post about it. And uh, I'd love to have you guys come here. I think, again, there are six left as of this morning and uh, we'll probably close registration down for that when I get back, whether it sells out or not. But usually they do sell out. Uh, I'm selling a couple extra seats this time around just in case somebody cancels. I can still handle a couple extra people, but that way it might make it easier if I sell out, if somebody can't come for some kind of life event to do some sort of refund or something. Anyway, because I have to build the event to the population that I'm expecting to show up. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, and we're going to talk about Ebola. And uh, just looking at the recorder right now, going through all the housekeeping and the Fucalora side note and all, I'm at about 12 minutes and uh, 30 seconds in. So with the music, say about 13 minutes in. If you want to share with this, this with somebody who's just concerned about Ebola and doesn't need to hear all of the front end of the show, you can certainly do that. Again, just tell them about 13 minutes in. And uh, today, again, we're going to talk about Ebola. And I, I want to explain my position on Ebola. Um. I don't think that Ebola has absolutely no threat to anybody whatsoever in the United States of America. It's impossible that anybody will be affected. That's that's not what I'm saying when I say stop worrying about it. Um, I I don't discount the fact that Ebola is a terrible disease and is relatively contagious in the right environment so that it can spread. I, I don't discount any of that, but I do take it for what it is. And, I have avoided talking too much about this because there is so much fear and hype going on right now. And I want to start out with talking about the fear and hype in the prepper, anti-government, liberty movement, survivalist, natural remedies all in all, uh, anti-vaccine, all of that rolled up into one big mess, the hype there. It is worse than the mainstream media's hype. It is absolutely 100%... Bullshit what's coming out of our own space on this right now because what we have in the the prepper space and everybody that's running websites and businesses off the prepper space is a desire, of course, to get more eyeballs on us Uh, and whatever we sell, we'd like to sell some more of it, please. And that's not necessarily bad in any way because if, as a business, if I can't sell a product like my member's brigade product or what have you or in another business, whatever they're selling, if you can't sell your product in sufficient quantity, you can't remain in business, you can't deliver service. So it's perfectly natural and normal and acceptable that I would want to sell you something. Okay, But I don't want to sell you something based on a lie. And many people in our space are completely, totally irresponsible and willing to sell whatever they can by any means necessary, whether it's a subscription to a magazine, a a, a natural health product, or a, a case of MREs. Whatever it is, they don't care how they sell it. All they want to do is sell it. And if you're in this space, you're paying attention to what's going on, and when something looks like a threat and it begins to gather some momentum, all of a sudden you lather it. I will not do that with you. I will never do that with you. If I tell you something's a serious threat, I mean it, and it is. There's been in the past things like certain hurricanes that I've said, this one I don't feel good about, guys. If you're anywhere near ground zero, get the hell out, right? That's because it was a legitimate, imminent threat, and in all cases I've said that, It's been a legitimate threat. In 2008, when I started doing this show, I was screaming at you, get your money out of the stock market, get your money out of the stock market, get your money out of the stock market, all the way up till the crash. Because I knew it was a legitimate threat to your wealth. So when there is a threat, I will tell you, there's a threat here, but it's tiny compared to the potential that you'll die from a freaking heart attack. I'll prove that out for you in a little bit. Okay. But that's, that's just where we're at with this. And I saw an article by my favorite yellow journalist con artist out there, Mike Adams, on Natural News, that I won't even you know, give any legitimacy to by reading it on the air to you or linking to it. Because I, I have no use for that publication or that individual at all anymore. He's a shyster and a yellow journalist. But basically his retort was, this is why you're being lied to about Ebola. He said, the government said Ebola would never come to America. No, they didn't. They said, the CDC said flat out months ago, sooner or later, we're going to have a case here. And another one of his things was, they say it's not airborne, but if it can linger, an Ebola virus can linger for some time, many minutes, perhaps more, some bullshit to that effect on a place where it can be picked up by you. Yes, if somebody vomits on a desk and you wipe it up with your hands, yes, but it's not aerosol or it can be aerosoled, right? If I have Ebola and I sneeze, and I sneeze in your face, especially at the later stages where there's a high population of the virus, that can transmit it, but it's not going to float through the air like the cold. Okay? It just doesn't spread that way. And it makes me sick to see this crap. And, 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 and another claim in that stupid-ass article was that it was, it was Ebola was invented by the government. It's, they invented it just so that they could, 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 could come up with a vaccine for it. Listen, our government does a lot of shit. But, but here's the reality about our government. It's nowhere near as competent as the average conspiracy theorist would lead you to believe. And I always believe if you can look at something and there's a possibility of malice and a possibility of incompetence, it's more likely that incompetence is the culprit than malice. Because malice requires intelligence, creativity, and forethought. And there's only so much of that going on out there. Do I believe that we are you know, soon going to see a, a proven, trialed-out Ebola uh, uh, vaccine? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Uh, do I think that there's a lot of money to be made on it by hyping this shit up? Yeah. Do I think that the Ebola vaccine will probably contain things that are not good for your health and should only be taken by those who are at legitimate risk for Ebola infection due to circumstances? Uh-huh. Uh, will I be getting one? No. Uh, no way. Do I think they're going to come to your house and grab you and drag you out and make you take this vaccine when they come out with it? No. I don't think any of that shit's going to happen. And I think all the hype and the hysteria in the prepper space about this, if someone's doing it right now, don't listen to them anymore. Stop. They've already, they've already shown you. That they care more about getting what they want from you than what they're giving to you. I'm not pointing anybody out but one ass clown because I have a a previous ass to grind with this guy. Um, Mike Adams is not the guy you think he is. I tried to, just so people that are new to this show know, I, I tried to advertise on his site years ago. And I didn't care that I got rejected. I thought maybe it was something to do with, you know, we have MREs advertised on the site and the health, and because they have something about additives and foods and stuff like that. And that makes sense. Well, no, I found out that the reason they turned me down as an advertiser is because we promote firearms. Yeah, we promote firearms. And and with his, and he sent me a personal email by the way. It said, with my audience, they're just too sensitive to this, and I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't have an advertiser that's connected to firearms. Never mind the fact that I don't actually sell firearms. I just advertise for some companies that happened too, never mind my point was I was done at that point and it's in his disclaimer and his ad policy and uh, then he runs around taking uh, gun classes and writes an occasional article about the second amendment I, 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 at that point you realize that someone's playing a game and I don't deal with people playing games so that's why of all people I will I'm willing to point him out as an example of what's going on but this is going on in many places Many, many places right now are lathering this up. And it's to sell you a case of this or a bottle of that. If you're, if you're getting that from somebody now, please find a new source. And I'm not saying that so you'll choose me over them. I don't care who, but do not trust people that hype this. Now, that doesn't mean don't trust people that discuss it. That any, I mean, I'm mentioning it, right? That any mention of it or any concern about it is completely unmitigated. No, but it does mean if it's being hyped, that that source knows better. They either know better, or they're not knowledgeable enough to be giving you information about topics like this. Okay, so I've said my piece in the beginning. Let's start out with this new thing called Ebola. How long have we known about Ebola? Where did it come from? Uh. It, it was discovered by a Belgian in 1976 from an infected nun, and it was actually spread through a nunnery because they were giving women injections with vitamins with unsterilized needles, and no one knew what the hell this thing was or how bad it was at first. So it's not new; it's existed at least since 1976. It's probably existed longer than that. It just here's the the, the key about this disease: it is a disease that by its very nature of spreading through bodily fluids is much more likely to be spread in the tropics, okay? The drier the climate, the quicker fluids dry up, the less time it's around. It is a humid tropics style of disease. And when people get infected with it, they go from well to sick to very sick to dead really, really fast. And it doesn't spread well unless you have modern transportation. So if we go back to the 70s and earlier in much of Africa where this disease already existed, there wasn't much transportation going on of the kind there is today. So it was largely confined and would wipe out an entire village maybe, but not spread anywhere. Today, with modern travel and and the fact that this stuff hit in urban centers in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea primarily – we've had a much more dramatic epidemic in that that area. But we've known about this in 76. How is Ebola spread? It is only spread through the transmission of bodily fluids, through close contact. If you have small cuts on your hands and you get mucus or vomit or blood or any bodily fluid on your hands, you can get infected with it from an infected person. Okay, If somebody vomits and you get down and clean it up, you can get infected with it. If somebody's infected with Ebola and they sneeze in your face, you can get Ebola. If someone's sitting 10 feet across the room from you and they're just sitting there breathing and you're on the other side of the room breathing the same air... It's not 100% impossible that just maybe somehow some flick of spit or something could somehow end up in you. But the odds of you getting Ebola in that situation are almost zero. Not 100% to zero, but almost zero. It does not spread through the air. It kills fast. It kills quick. It's highly lethal. It's everything a disease needs to not be. To be highly contagious and move rapidly throughout a population. It is a slow moving, crawling illness. That's what it is, and that's how it spreads. The next thing is, and this is one of the things we really have to stop. You know, there's so many reasons to be opposed to the current presidential administration and the totality of government on both sides of the aisle right now. So much that's being done wrong. We really need to resist, in this false dichotomy, the urge to dogpile on to one side or the other, depending on which side we are rooting for. Now, I'm not rooting for either side, but I know many of you are rooting for one side versus the other, and in this audience, let's be honest, the majority of people that are picking one side or the other, voting for the lesser of two evils, as you say, are on the side of conservatism-republicanism, okay? Okay which is pretty good marketing pitch that they have but you know the actions don't ever back the words but that's where this audience falls it's either i'd say there's 5% of this audience is liberal okay in the in the, in the true sense of liberal progressive democrat i would say that probably 60% of the audience is conservative republican and the balance is somewhere in the anarcho libertarian world but the majority's republican so you guys are the ones doing this right now. These memes on Facebook about Obama sending troops to fight Ebola. They got a guy with a gun pointed at a virus slide or something, you know. Um, are we sending troops to fight Ebola? E- yeah. We sent almost 4,000 troops now to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, uh, specifically Liberia and Sierra Leone, to fight Ebola. But we are not deploying infantry. We are not deploying people to go out and engage in some sort of combat activity. Now, we are sending people with combat experience because it's a dangerous environment in and of a whole. So we are sending primarily combat engineers who are building hospitals, clinics, and laboratories and giving them over to the governments, the local governments to and the CDC to work on containing and treating the illness there. This is like one of the few military deployments in the last 10 years that really makes sense that we might do this. If, we're, if we are con- as concerned as we say we are about containing this, this is probably one of the best things we can do because part of why there's such a problem in these nations is because there's so little ability to treat and respond to the situation. If you have Ebola in the United States, you probably have about a 75 to 80% chance of surviving. That's I'm not saying you're going to have a good time of it, and I'm not going to say you're going to be at, without any kind of repercussions after recovery. But you probably have a 75 to 80% chance of making it. That means you have a 20%, 25% chance of dying, so it's not good. If you get Ebola in Sierra Leone right now, you probably have about a 50% chance of dying. And you have a very good chance of laying in your own home while your family tries to chant over you or do something to you and infects themselves. So the infrastructure that's lacking there and the ability to respond to the threat that's there is so low that something has to be done. Do I think we should do it? Not necessarily. But do I understand why? Yes. And of all the things that I can condemn my government for doing right now, this one's pretty low on the list. So if you think that Obama is sending soldiers to fight with guns Ebola, you are mischaracterizing and misrepresenting what is actually happening. Again, you don't have to be for it, but at least be honest about what's going on. And don't be misleading. Because I haven't seen anybody... At all, to be fair, on either side, explain what the mission actually is. Well, I've looked into it, as I do for you, because I am on the fact-finding mode for you here. And the mission is the building of clinics, okay, laboratories, and hospitals. And the people doing the building are combat engineers. Yours truly, Jack Spirko, was a mechanic in the United States Army who served with combat engineers on multiple deployments, and this is exactly who you would send to do that. I'm telling you is, there's a lot of things going on in the military where I, I kind of have like a, a, a idea about. I was around it. This is my world. This is exactly who you would send to do this job. I was part of teams that did this type of work, not in the middle of an Ebola outbreak. We did this to build roads in Honduras in 1991 and 1992 as a part of a, a thing that was called Operation Fortis Caminas, right? Strong roads. I was part of that mission. This is what they're doing, right? And uh, you have people saying, well, they're using our troops as guinea pigs. No, no. Let me tell you something about commanders on the ground. The military does a lot of good and a lot of bad. I'll admit to both sides of it. But commanders on the ground protect their soldiers in every way that they can. I guarantee you these guys are not carrying around sick little kids, They are in isolated areas. I'm not saying there's no risks to them at all, but they, they isolate off and contain the area. They go in, they build whatever they're supposed to build, they turn it over, and they go do it again. This is how combat engineers work on this type of mission. You're either building something for your own or you're building something for a host nation. In this case, you're building it for a host nation being supported by CDC. Now, this does not make me a lover of big government. I'm not saying that everything that's going on here is good. But what I'm saying is, if there is legitimate purpose to a federal government interacting with foreign nations and coordinating with large-scale organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and the United States military, this is it. This is as good as it gets right here. And this makes sense. So don't be misled and don't be part of the misleading of others through this troops to fight Ebola statement without knowing what it means at least. Now, let's look at some reality. okay? Now, I could make these numbers far more favorable to my point. And the way that I could do that would be if I included Nigeria in the numbers that I'm about to give you. Because the reality is Nigeria has had about 20 cases of Ebola and they have a population. Of about 173 million. I'm not going to do it. Because it would be I would be misleading you. But it does bear at least noting. That even Nigeria here. You're talking about 20 odd cases. And 173 million people. I am actually going to confine the numbers. I'm about to give you. To the nations of Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. This is the epicenter. This is the most heavily impacted area. Of the world today. With Ebola. And it's multiple reasons. One is because it's Ebola. It just is, right? Ebola is what it is. Number two, the cultural attitudes in this environment of doing things like when somebody's dead kissing them on the head, even though they died from Ebola, and then infecting yourself because you're getting their sweat and their blood and their tears in your mouth, right? The the appalling conditions uh, as far as just general health and sanitation in these nations is unbelievable. The way that you, you don't know what real poverty is until you go into a nation like one of these nations. and In Central America, I saw similar cities and towns and types of uh, sanitation situations in poverty. You you don't know how bad it is until you see it. If you've never seen it, you're going to have to trust me. All of those things, plus where it popped up this time was in a highly densely populated area instead of some rural village. All of that combined to make that area the epicenter, the ground zero. Of this outbreak, and in that ground zero, as of ten three fourteen, so this is four days ago, from the website of the C- Center for Disease Control itself, there have been in those three nations seven thousand four hundred and seventy cases of Ebola, three thousand four hundred thirty-one deaths, roughly just like Jack told you, about a fifty percent death rate, rate right bang on a little high, like fifty four fifty five percent. Okay, the combined population of Guinea. Liberia and Syria alone is 22 million people. So of 22 million people, 7,470 have been infected. In the worst breakout of this disease ever in recorded history. That means that so far, the current percent of infection in the three nations combined is 0.03%. Don't miss the zero there. 0.03%. That is three hundredths of 1%. The current death in these three nations is about 0.0156, right? You can round it up to 0.02. Two hundredths of 1% of the population of the worst outbreak ever have been killed by this disease. Let's compare that to some statistics in the United States of America. Motor vehicle fatalities in 2012 in the United States were 33,000 people, which means 0.01% of our entire population died in motor vehicle accidents. Um, that's almost the same number of the number of people in these three nations who have died from Ebola during the biggest epidemic pandemic ever. It's not insignificant, but it does start to correlate into some level of reality. But the total deaths from all accidents, and the the, the latest year I can find the total numbers from a reliable source, 0.04% of the entire population of the United States died of accidents in 2009. That's out of 316 million people. 0.04% died in accidents in our country. That is double the death rate of Ebola in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. So you are twice as likely to die from an accident in the United States as you are to die from Ebola in Sierra Leone. Got that? Twice as likely. But in 2009, one of the biggest killers was malignant cancerous tumors. Malignant cancerous tumors killed 0.18%. Note there's no zero in there first, right? 0.18%, almost two-tenths of a percent of the total population of the United States died of cancer in 2009, whereas about 0.02% of the people in those nations died of Ebola this year. You are much more likely to die of cancer than Ebola if you were in Sierra Leone. Got it? You have to take that into consideration with all of this hype. Now, does that mean there's no danger whatsoever? No, of course not. But, you know, right now, I think there's been three people in America with Ebola. I, I don't even want to run the number. What is, what is three of 316 million? Right, And I don't think any of them died. I don't think the doctor or the nurse that came back died. And the guy that's in Dallas Hospital, he's still alive, at least for now. So we have no deaths. And, and three people on the ground in America, all three having had first been to Africa, all three having direct content and contact, and by the way, intentionally. The two medical professionals obviously did. The guy that's in Dallas Hospital right now helped somebody die, his own words. Right? He was there when they died. He, was, he, he helped them die from this disease and then ha- lied about it, hauled ass back to America because he knew if he did come down with it, he'd be much better off here. He then went to the hospital told the intake that he had been to West Africa, was experiencing the initial symptoms of the disease, they did not note it, and when he was seen by that doctor for differential diagnosis, it wasn't considered, he was sent home and came back a couple of days later. Had that little procedure been done right, he never would have left the hospital and never contacted anybody else. Right? No one else that's been in contact with this man at this point has shown any symptoms of Ebola. I'm not saying it's impossible. His per- His family that lived in the same home with him I'd be very concerned if I were one of them right now. But people you walk by on the street or talk to, especially before they're symptomatic, almost no risk whatsoever. This is where we're at. So I've said that the greatest threat to the United States from this is, and and I would say any first world nation from this disease, is economic. So why? The first is media hype. The media, who is actually doing one of the better jobs... Did I've ever seen with this thing, I mean, compared to the way they handled the swine flu, which was a complete non-event. Jack told you that was a non-event too, didn't he? Um, just saying. But the way they handled swine flu was just, a, it was an atrocious overhyping. The media has remained pretty low-key on this so far. They've been pretty accurate in their reporting. Not the talking head media. The news media, the actual news media, has done a better job with this than most other things that I've seen them handle in the past. you got to acknowledge when people do things fairly well. But when this guy in Dallas turned up with it, the the local media around here went apeshit. They're interviewing parents that are concerned that their kids go to a school that's next to a school that another kid went to that somebody sat next to the guy on a bus. Right, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And in the end, our media, and I mean everything from the alternative media to the mainstream media and everything in between, are generally a whole bunch of people going, look at me, look at me, I'm important, I'm relevant, look at me. And when people don't look at them long enough, they'll start to lather shit up. And as long as there's something to talk about that... Leads on to what they're already on. Whatever's hot, they'll keep doing it. So now we have a patient in Spain. So that's something we can talk about. Now we have the Marburg hemorrhagic fever breaking out in Uganda where one person actually had it. There's like 80 people under observation. 60 are healthcare workers that have worked in the environment with the one guy that's got it. And the Marburg hemorrhagic fever is pretty damn bad, and it's the same family of Ebola. As long as there's something to talk about, they'll keep talking about it. So media hype is a huge concern for the economic impact that it could have. When we have things that happen, like during the swine flu, for instance, there's a festival here called Mayfair in Fort Worth. It is a huge arts festival. It brings in millions and millions of dollars to the local economy of Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas. Tens of millions of dollars. This is a big deal. They canceled it because of the swine flu epidemic that wasn't. It was absolutely positively ridiculous. You know, and at the same time Dallas is running sporting events with you know attendance of fifty thousand people and not worrying about it. If there's enough media hype what happens is that the public then goes into overreaction mode. That is the second component. So when the media hides something enough, the public starts demanding what? You need to do something, government. Okay. When, When the most logical thing to do right now is wherever there apparently is a threat, contain it, decontaminate it, and isolate it. And do nothing else. Do absolutely nothing else on the ground here. And to get very tight about screening of any passenger on any airplane or any other mode of transportation coming into the United States that has stepped foot in West Africa. Very stringent, including potentially saying, you know what, if you want to go there, fine. You want to come back, fine. When you come back, you'll be in a room for a few days, alone. And if you don't show any symptoms after that, then we'll let you back I don't know but that's it that's the only thing that needs to be done right now from our end now if we want to engage in aid activities in West Africa again for all the, the bad that our government does that's something that we can make a positive contribution to I'm not saying we'll pull it off but at least we can, we can it's possible and we can try and it makes sense but first you get the hype then you get the overreaction then come the legitimate concerns so if we end up with five, six, eight people on the ground in America with Ebola. It will largely be because they've all come back from West Africa, somehow gotten through screening, et cetera, and that's a problem. The other legitimate concern here, and this is something I would be highly concerned about, is a terrorist group using this as a weapon. Because it wouldn't make a good bomb-type weapon. It really wouldn't. It just wouldn't. But if it is contained in bodily fluids, it is quite possible that one could use bodily fluids of infected and dying individuals to spread the disease intentionally. That's another legitimate concern. So just the fact that it is a disease, it does spread, it can happen, it can get here, and it does move and mutate, etc. And the fact that somebody could actually be sick enough to intentionally make it worse. And the reason this is a horrific terrorist weapon is if it was successfully used on half a dozen people, it would create nationwide and even global hysteria and extreme overreaction by government as well as individuals. This is where I'm concerned. And when those types of things get together, what you'll have is a massive economic impact when the D.C. snipers are running around, it pretty much shut down the whole area. Imagine that being the whole United States acting that way. So when you start having major events canceled, et cetera, you have this massive uh, cascading economic potential. And if it happens to coincide with already poor economic performance in given sectors or its seasonal economic performance doesn't make, meet up. So let's say there's a few more of these things that go on. Uh, just legitimate infections, people getting back to the country. As we go into Christmas, Christmas shopping numbers are not going to be what the analysts want to see, especially the offline shopping, as more and more people move to online. So that sends out a red flag. We got an election, and it's all coincides. You could see this send the country into the tailspin of another small recession going into next year. Even if no one else gets sick, if the right confluences come together, or a few people get sick, That's our real threat here. Now, is there a potential for a true pandemic to to break out in this country? Yeah, it's probably not going to be Ebola. It just doesn't spread that way. Let's talk about why the threat is minimal to begin with. The first one is that quarantine is extremely effective for Ebola. More so than something like SARS. And SARS was contained with quarantine and isolation. So, if we can contain SARS, we can contain Ebola. So it's it's just a disease that, because it's spread by bodily fluid, quarantine is extremely effective. It's not like if somebody opens a window, it's going to get out. Which is, when we think of diseases, we think about them that way. Some diseases float through the air, fly through the air with the greatest of ease, just like the cold, right? And it's certain variations of the flu. Ebola is a lot like the H1N1 bird flu. You need the close contact. Where other claves of the flu and cold viruses, etc., you know, you can be in the same breathing space with somebody and, and spread them. So this disease just doesn't do that. It's also not contagious until symptomatic, and it becomes more contagious the more symptomatic the individual becomes. So the initial stages are things like, did every disease starts out with it? This is makes, makes it hard to diagnose early, you know, headache and fever and neck ache and things like this. Okay. When a person experiences those symptoms, at that point they are contagious, but the population of the virus hasn't multiplied in the body to the point where you would call them highly contagious. It is in the, the the end stages, the second stages of the disease, where it begins to attack the organs, and you go into what actually kills you, hemorrhagic fever, which is not that far off of what happened to people with the plague. You begin to bleed from parts of your body. The body sweats and bleeds, and all types of things come out of it. At that point, this person is not running around shaking hands and kissing babies. They are laid up, immobile, and they are on death's door without serious medical treatment. And they might be at death's door even with it. So, as horrible as this disease is, the fact that Ebola patients go from well to a little sick to extremely sick fast helps to contain it. Because it's not, there are many diseases that the person walking around spreading them doesn't even have any symptoms. There are strains of the flu, for instance, that you can get and never even feel ill. Your body just does such a good job of fighting it off, for whatever reason... But you've got it. And maybe you feel, you don't even, you you have some symptoms, but you don't really, like, I'm a little achy, but that could be because I played an extra round of golf. I'm a little hot, but maybe it's hot in here. And you're a little tiny bit sick, but you don't even really take it as ill. And you go on about your life and you spread that shit all over the place. Right? Ebola doesn't work that way. You don't get Ebola and just go off and play golf again. It doesn't work that way. So the fact that it's a quick progressing, serious, incapacitating illness helps to isolate it and reduce spread. And the fact that it has to be spread with bodily fluids, those two together, are why this thing, this is why you've never seen 10 million people dead from Ebola. And it's probably why you never will. And if you do, you damn sure ain't going to see it in a developed nation. Because no one sits around and lets that happen. We do have a self-preservation instinct. And we're not completely incompetent as a species. We're really not. And the next thing is, if you have been exposed to this, it is likely that you're going to know it. So right now, no one just popped up with Ebola in the middle of Japan that hasn't been to Africa. Okay, It doesn't work that way. Every person that's touched U.S. soil with this disease, all three of them, knew, knew they had the disease when they got here. One just lied about it. One was pretty sure. That's the guy in Dallas. The other two came home sick. They brought them home to try to save their lives. Right? So the fact that you not only would go from sick to extremely sick quickly, and you can't actually spread it until you're sick, but the fact that you would know that you've been in a high risk situation. Right? Because you don't accidentally go to Guinea. Right. You, you, you see what I'm saying? I'm making a very logical, concise case for the fact that this thing doesn't have the potential that many people are being led to believe that it does, to run rampant and spread rapidly in the United States. It's not even spreading rapidly in West Africa. If you look at a nation with a few thousand cases and 16 million people, that's not a rapidly spreading disease. The flu in 2009 killed 53,000 people in the United States of America. The random, generic, everyday flu. Now, most of those people that died were people that were already sick or old or weak. And they didn't really die of the flu. They died of pneumonia that was aggravated by the flu or something like that. But still, 53,000 people dead of the flu in 2009. And you got 7,000-odd dead people in Africa from Ebola. And we're going to be panicked about this? Again, you're more likely to die of heart disease, lung cancer, or diabetes complications in the next couple of years than you are to even know somebody that knew somebody that knows somebody now that used to know somebody that had Ebola once. Yeah, just to paraphrase uh, uh, Spaceballs there with the was what was it? I am your father's cousin's uncle's former roommate. Really, what does that make us? absolutely nothing right i mean to the the level of ridiculousness on some levels here but if there is a threat what do we do well the same common sense, sense preps as always i mean that's the this is why i don't panic when i hear about ebola this is why we prepare to go with lacks of lack of services and lack of systems of support rather than prepare for ebola this is why i don't feel the need let's do a get ready for ebola podcast. Because we don't get ready for Ebola. We get ready for the types of things that an Ebola outbreak could cause if it was going to happen. But at the same time, I'm telling you diseases do mutate. And is it possible that Ebola could mutate and become more virulent and and able to spread at a higher level? Yeah. Is it likely? No. It's possible. Um, It's possible for a lot of things to happen. It's possible. You'll walk down the street today. You'll walk on a piece of bubble gum. You won't realize it. You'll walk along. The piece of bubble gum will land on a piece of paper. The piece of paper will stick to your shoe. Somebody will point it out to you. You'll look down at it. The piece of paper will be a scratch-off lottery ticket that somebody didn't bother to scratch the last uh, uh, rub-off on. You'll pull it off of the gum on your shoe. You'll scratch it, and you'll look at it, you'll win $50,000. That's possible. But you're not going to base your life on that. There are other diseases that are more likely to create a legitimate pandemic threat. That's a threat to, to health and life in our country than Ebola. And the flu is one of them. We have strains of the flu that are highly contagious, and we have strains of the flu that are highly lethal. Right? We have no highly contagious strains of Ebola in the in the in the air, in, in the realm of airborne virus. We just don't. We just have highly lethal. So in the flu. We got both. They just haven't connected with each other, well, since 1918, okay? So that danger of pandemic, if I'm worried about a pandemic today, I've got my eye on the flu or I've got my eye on some disease that we don't even have a name for yet that we're not even aware of yet that could show up and be some kind of a hybrid of two different uh, pathogens or something like that. Or we're into some sort of a chemical contamination or something like that, I'm not going to sit around worrying about this one thing because it's just common sense prepping as always. But what does that mean? Well, that means that we have a minimum of 30 days of food and essential supplies on hand, and 60 days is better. If we ever get into a point where people are legitimately concerned about this disease or any other disease, the smartest thing that the government can do is any high any high to moderate risk area go into isolation, quarantine, lockdown. I know you don't like that. The libertarian in me doesn't like that. But it works. And it's what they would do because it's the only play they have. So being able to sit in your home and take care of yourself for one to two months without leaving the house or leaving very, very minimally under very, very tight constrictions would be a really good thing to have done for so many reasons other than this. So, I think that I've done enough over the years in teaching you to prep that everybody out there, unless you're brand new to the show, would know that you should be able to be on your own for one to two months, minimum. You want to go longer? Great. But that's your minimum, is a month, 30 days. Most people in their homes at any given time could survive for two weeks easy, just on what's in the refrigerator, the freezer, and the cupboard, assuming the power's not out. So, generally speaking, Ebola viruses are not going to shut down the power grid, all right? They're not that kind of virus. They don't get into the computers and shut. It's not that kind of virus. So odds are you'd have your electricity and you, your your power services, your water, et cetera, and you just have a disease that's out there and you stay in here, okay? That means you need to be prepared to work remotely, if possible, this is a conversation that you should have with your employer anyway, just because it's better for your life. If you can work remotely, let's say one day a week, it might be a good idea to have a conversation with your employer that goes this way. Mr. Employer, I think it would be a good thing for the entire company to have a disaster plan and all personnel that could work remotely have in place the the, the needs and requirements necessary so that they could do that. And We should test this. If nothing else, right now we could use it when people want to work a little extra time when they have some time to work on a project. So being able to access the intranet at work or whatever it is that you need to be able to do. Now, some jobs, you've got to go there. You stock shelves in a grocery store? You can't do that remotely. If you program a computer, it can be done remotely, and more people are moving to that anyway. If there is any way that you can work remotely, I would try to get buy-in from your employer to do it now. Regardless of any epidemic ever, just because it gives you so much greater flexibility in your life, even if it's one day a week. And often employers who give it a trial, when they see that employee getting more done on the days they're working home than the days they're in the office, all of a sudden one day becomes four and they have you in the office one day a week. Generally speaking, even me with employees, I've always had to have them in the office a day or two a week. Because I want to sit down, I want to talk to them, I want to go over things. Unless they're out in remote sales or something like that, I want to be able to put them in a desk and I want to be able to give them some oversight and stuff like that. But it makes sense for any company in this day and age to, to put workers into that remote environment and if they can't handle it, you don't want them working in an office either. You want a different person with that job. If I can't trust you to work from your home, I don't really trust you to work in my office. That's how I personally feel. But anything you can do to be able to work remotely is a great idea anyway. Good storage of essentials for your animals as well. We've talked about this a lot recently. I've really increased the feed on hand for the 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 chickens and the ducks and the geese and the dogs, etc. Because they have to eat too. Be medically prepared. But here's the thing well, I will get Tamiflu for the flu or whatever, you know. There's no drugs to treat Ebola with, right? And if you had Ebola during one of these situations, you want to get your ass to a hospital because that's about the best chance you have of surviving and not killing everybody in your family. But if you were just, if you got the flu while there was an Ebola quarantine, the last place you want to go is to a hospital, So you need to be able to take care of your basic medical needs at home during a quarantine because you may actually contract an illness or an injury that is not what the quarantine's about and you're safe for staying away from a hospital full of infected people for something that you could treat yourself. And understand that the number one killer in disasters in the world is diarrhea from dysentery and other infections when people have to drink contaminated water because if I give you a choice of drinking contaminated water or dying of thirst, sooner or later you'll drink the contaminated water every single time. So the health and sanitation can never be under overlooked in any prepping plan. It has nothing to do with the fact that this is a pandemic and everything to do with what? Dealing without systems of support for a period of time. And my last piece of advice on this, assuming that you get yourself prepped and you can sustain yourself for a month or two in your own home in the relative safety and comfort of that establishment and have a plan to evacuate if you have to and can sustain yourself during that evacuation period. If you can do that, then what I want you to do about Ebola is this. I want you to, in the words of the great Charlie Papazian, one of the pioneers of home brewing of beer, relax don't worry, have a home brew, or a glass of wine, or a glass of tea, or whatever it is that you imbibe in to just relax. A hot mint tea, a Chinese tea, a beer, a scotch on the rocks, I don't care what, I want you to freaking unwind and relax about this. Because of all the things that are a threat to us right now, Ebola is so far down the list. But it sounds scary. It's a rare tropical disease. And do you know that the government created it and they have a vaccine, man, and they're going to make you take it. And see, it's just it can it can be lathered up by the Alex Joneses of the world so easily and by the mainstream media. It's a rare and highly lethal tropical disease that was relatively unknown in the modern world, but this time is different. Already, three individuals in America have contracted the deadly virus. While it was due to direct contact with individuals in the epicenter of the epidemic, we cannot rule out the, the, the possibility that they have come into contact with other individuals and possibly there are more individuals already right now infected in the general population. Sounds scary as shit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's designed to get you, pay attention, look at me, I'm relevant. Preparedness is not about individual threats. It's about common sense, rational thinking. And it's not hard. It's not difficult, it's something that we all should do. As I've said before, I believe basic preparedness and modern survival philosophy could be summed up simply as Responsible Adult Behavior Having the ability for you and your family and possibly extended members of your family you might have to take in to exist for 30 to 60 days in your home is not dramatic. It's not radical. It's not survivalism, doomsday preppers, bonkers. ah! It's being a responsible damn adult. First and foremost, every adult in this country should look in the frickin' mirror, and you see that reflection? The most responsible individual for everything that ever happens to that reflection is frickin' you. You got it? You are responsible for you. It's not Obama's fault, it's not Bush's fault, 90% of the shit in your life is there because of you. And you get to deal with it. And that means when the systems that you depend on fall down, the first person to look to to fix it and to get through it is you. Okay? That's being a responsible adult. I'm sorry no one ever told you when you were growing up that that's what responsible adults did. But I'm telling you right now, so now you know. The next thing I want you to do is look at everybody that you really love and really care about that cohabitates the same house you live in. Okay? The most responsible person to see to them other than them themselves, unless they're young children where it's definitely their parents, is you. You are responsible for your own family before the government, before the police department, before the neighborhood watch, before the mayor, before the dog catcher or the guy that picks up your garbage. You are responsible for them. It is your responsibility to see to their safety and comfort. Not the government. You! You are responsible for your children to get an education. Not the school. That school is a tool for you to help you educate your children. You are responsible for your kids and yourself. Being able to feed yourself for 30 days or more without having to rely on anybody else is responsible behavior. Anything else is irresponsible behavior. So my firm belief is that responsible adults, now that you know what I think that means, have almost nothing to worry about in regard to Ebola. And if we do, it's either either through the malicious, intentional infection of individuals by those that seek fear, and I don't care where it comes from, anybody that did it would be seeking fear. Or the economic impact due to overreaction. But I don't even think most of us have much to worry about in the realm of true pandemic if we're not initially infected in the first wave from any disease if we can stay put for 60 days and look after ourselves. So if you're responsible, that's you. And if you can't do that right now because of the situation in life, you need to get on that path as quickly as possible. And when you get there, you're there. But if your response to that is, "Well, I don't think I need to do that, man. I just wanted, I just wanted to, do, you know, get some some masks or something." No, you're not responsible. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but I really believe that an adult in 2014 that doesn't take the necessary steps to provide for themselves and their family for at least a 30 day period without being able to just run out and get something is not behaving responsibly. And with that, this has been Jack Speargo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The revolution is you. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the